you, and if you would, to open your word, your Bible, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to read the first 12 verses. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would. Look along as I read. By the way, I'm preaching from the Legacy Standard Bible this evening. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand with listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. For a time, I'm going to jump over those names and move on to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. If you're Presbyterian, you would say, Amen, Amen. I love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Amen. While lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshiped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. And then jumping to the latter part of verse 7, the Levites were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight, and they provided understanding of the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who provided the people with understanding, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate with great gladness, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. That is indeed God's word to God's people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? Please be seated. I gave this message the title, and it's simply this. The people said, bring the book. Bring the book. And just to give a little bit of an introduction to Nehemiah, it'll be brief, but I think it's important that we look at this. Nehemiah comes out of a background of difficulty, 
pain and glory. In fact, the opening scenes here in Nehemiah takes place in Persia. A new stage of God's dealings with his people begins here. And what is seen in the final carrying out of God's judgment in his chastisement on Israel at the time was the promised land first attacked. It was first attacked by the Syrians, leading the deportation and loss of the ten northern tribes. And in a time later, the Babylonians attacked, destroyed and nearly depopulated Jerusalem. Then deporting the best of Judah to Babylon, God chastened his people with 70 years of captivity in Babylon. In fact, the Bible says in Jeremiah 25 verse 11, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And they did. By the close of Nehemiah, God has allowed his people to reestablish a secure position in the promised land. Obviously, two of the key people, the most uh, significant people we see that are key people in Nehemiah is Nehemiah himself and Ezra. And when you think of the book of Nehemiah, probably your first thought is, what? The rebuilding of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah was able to gather the people together. He equipped them and he led them in rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. After and after the walls were built, Nehemiah ensured that the people would read the law of God and they would understand it. In other words, he's saying, God use my leadership and again, hopefully, the character in my life and the integrity in my life. And I think Nehemiah probably is one of the best examples of integrity, character, obeying God, one of them in the entire Bible. And God used and worked through Nehemiah as a key person in the reestablishment of the Jewish nation in the promised land after the exile. Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was not a priest, he was not a king, but simply an Israelite. But he held a cabinet level position under Artaxerxes, the Persian monarch. And Nehemiah became the governor of Judah later, which you can read in chapter two and chapter five of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's heart was broken. He was burdened with a passion to go to Jerusalem for the sake of those who would be returning, rebuilding, repenting, all for the glory and the honor of God. When you look at a quick review of an outline of Nehemiah, you can see immediately Nehemiah returns and rebuilds the walls. He has a mission. It's amazing how they were able to do that in 52 days. Nehemiah supervises again the rebuilding of the walls. And then as you move on further into Nehemiah chapter 7, all the way in chapter 10, you see Ezra's revival and renewal. It is to say that Ezra was one of the best examples of someone who exposited the law of God to the people. He instructed the people as to what the law of God was. He simply told them what God means 
by what he says. That's an expositor. And the people worshipped and the people repented. There was a sense of restoration. There was obvious sense of renewal. But there was also a great revival. I don't know about you, but I believe the church needs revival. One thing to be sure about revival is that you and I do not govern it. We can pray, we can fast, and we should, and we do. And we need to do it earnestly. We need to do it passionately. Like Isaiah cried out, God, would you rend the heavens and come down? The psalmist said in Psalm 85, 1, he says, Lord, will you not revive us again that we may, that we may rejoice in thee? And there's other scriptures that pertain to people crying out and praying to God for a sense of renewal, restoration, and revival in the church. And so the people responded. The people responded when they listened and heard, thus saith the Lord. And they worshipped and they repented. And then Nehemiah's work continues on through chapter 11 through chapter 13. Let's look back at verse 1 of chapter 8. And they said, that is all the people that were there. And they said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. You may ask the question, who is Ezra? Ezra was a priest and a scribe, skilled, astute in the law of God. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Ezra was instrumental in restoring the law, bringing with it a true sense of renewal where there was a genuine repentance in the heart of the people, where they were broken over their sin. And through the proclamation of that truth, the law brought a true sense of renewal resulting in revival. In fact, the Bible describes Ezra this way in chapter 7, verse 10. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh. That should be the passion of every preacher, every pastor that is called to exposit the text. It should be their motivation, their priority, and their heart above all else that they would set their heart laying aside everything, putting aside everything, and concreting, con actually concreting themselves in a position that they are setting their heart to study the Bible, to study the law of God. I hasten to add, if you're called to be a preacher, and if you're not preaching the Bible, you need to quit. You need to do something else. But it seems today that we have ministers and pastors that are more driven by their popularity and their methods of pragmatism and their success than they are the passion of knowing the truth so that they can stand behind this sacred desk and exposit it to the people of God. 
Give us preachers today that are not ashamed of the gospel that preach the word of God. So Ezra set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it. There is no way in my heart, in my conscience, in any preacher or pastor that's worth his salt, if he has a conscience, and if he has a heart, if he has a mind, that he would ever dare preach the truth without practicing it in his own life. I can't admonish you to pray if I'm not praying. I can't encourage you to fast if I'm not fasting. I can't encourage you to give God's word your undivided attention if I'm not doing the same. But Ezra set his heart to know and to study the law and to practice it and to teach it his statutes, that is the Lord's statutes, and judgment to Israel. He set his heart, he set his heart to study, he put into practice what he studied. And then he brought that word to the people to teach the statutes and the judgments to Israel that came from God. There's three main headings I want to touch on here this evening. It would be the word restore. It would be the word renew. And it would be the word revive. You say, Dave, though all those words mean the same thing. And they do. Pretty much they do. But there's a little twist, there's a little angle on each one of those words that indicate there's something that builds off of each one that links these words together that rings true in this text when Ezra and the scribes and the Levites were bringing the word of the Lord to the people that they asked for. They asked for him, them to bring the book. And so it says here, again, the people gathered. In verse 1 of chapter 8, the people gathered. That really is a picture of the church. I remember vividly back in the earlier part of 2020 when COVID came on the scene and our federal government deemed it that church was not essential. Us coming together, us assembling together, us gathering together was not essential. Which in reality would go against conscience because we are mandated and required to gather, to assemble together. I don't know if you remember this or not, but our governor, McMaster, he didn't go along with that. Y'all remember that? He didn't go along with that. He knew what the government was saying. He knew what they were telling us. But the fear that that pandemic brought on to people, we learned that you don't need an army to shut down a nation. If you just scare them big enough, you can shut it down. And I think there was a lot of things we were misinformed about. Could have been because of their ignorance about it, but yet we were. But at the same time, we knew all true believers, all those who have been apprehended by Christ, all those who belong to Christ knew that we come together. 
I can tell you that that my heart is leaping and pounding. I can look at my watch and check my heart rate is 100 because it's like I can't wait to get to Rock Hill to gather and to be with God's people. Now, you look at some people in some church, you wonder why they're even there. If they've got the joy of the Lord, they haven't notified their face about it yet. They're there, but do they really want to be there? Do they enjoy the excitement of gathering and assembling and being together as the body of Christ? I think there may have been one or at least two Sundays at the church I pastor back in the Columbia area. We didn't meet. And it was literally breaking my heart. I understand what they were saying about the pandemic and all of that. But I knew we needed to gather. And I saw where a brother in another part of the state was having drive-in church. I said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have drive-in church. So we set up the PA system outside of the parking lot. People drove up in their cars. Parked all in the parking lot, parked on the streets, parked on this side of the street, this side of the street. Richland County Sheriff Department was, was a blessing to us. They shut down that street so nobody could come down it while we were having church. People would stop on the street and come to church. We grew during COVID. We actually grew numerically doing that. But my whole point is, People came because there's something about gathering as they did. We know that um, in uh, even the Acts of the Apostles, you know this very well. We know that, that when the people gathered in the first century church in Acts chapter 2, the very life of their church was basically comprised of four things. Chapter, one, chapter 2 verse 42 says, And they were continually devoting themselves. Now, I love that word continually because this was not a spasmodic thing. This was not an optional thing. I think that, well, first of all, I never dreamed in my life as being a pastor that I would have to compete as a church and a pastor with travel ball. Travel ball is when you have children and they play sports all year long and they travel everywhere it can be rather costly, but there was a person that had not been to church in a while, hadn't seen them in about a year. I tried to reach out to him. I would try to communicate with him. And finally, I was able to talk to him. I said, listen, brother, we miss you at church. What's going on? He says, well, you know, we got this travel ball thing. And um, tell you what, preacher, I'm busy. And if we can work church in, we'll be there. That's what he said. Notice I got all this going on. I got travel ball going on. I've got work going on. I got all this going on. But if I can really slide in church, work in church, in it, I'll be there. But if not, you probably won't see me. That was not the case in the first century church. That should not be the case today. They continually, they continually devoted themselves not only to assemble and to gather, but they were committed to the apostles' teaching. It was a priority to hear, thus saith the Lord. Fellowship, koinonia, they came together. There was fellowship. There was communion. The breaking of bread, a reference to the Lord's table, communion, which is required that believers observe. And also prayers. Prayers. 
individually and corporately coming together to pray. You know what the next verse says? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Don't you long for that? Is not that in your heart? That we would continue in the truth? That there would be continual koinonia? That there would be continual breaking of bread? The observing of the Lord's table? And then prayers, and the Lord would add to our number. We're seeing that here. Pastor Mark is seeing that here on his leadership. And it's a blessing. And we thank God for that. <clears throat> you know what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have a clear requirement. It's mandated. Andy Stanley stood and shook his finger at the camera and says, come in. That's not true. It's not true. That's what it says. But then again, they said, bring the book. Bring the book is where we gather that word restore, which means bring back. What seemingly was lost and what seemingly was being avoided and what seemingly they were not having anything to do with, especially when they realize we're in captivity, we're being chastised, we're under God's judgment, that maybe in that predicament they realize that what they have done is that they were not obeying God and they did not take sin seriously and they did not take what God said to them seriously. So there's got to be a bringing back. And they are the ones that said that gathered, bring the book. Bring the book. What is seen here is a new obedience to God. I think that could really be something that would really be a good defining point about revival. You'll see a new beginning of obedience to God. Bring the book. We know that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. This clearly is a cry for God's word. They didn't say, bring us the drama team. They didn't say, bring us the latest fad, pour the smoke out, get the fog machines going, get it booming, get it loud, make the sanctuary dark, make it feel like you're in a nightclub, have your flashing lights, have all these things. They didn't say, bring that. They said, bring the book. Bring the word of God to bear on our lives. This is clearly your cry for God's word. Bring the book, the book of the law, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, which Yahweh had commanded. I love that word commanded because it's the same word that's used in Psalm 19.8 where the Lord actually, by his own self-disclosure, tells us how he views his own word. And one of the titles he gave his word was the commandment. The commandment of the Lord in Psalm 19.8. And that word commandment there is best described and defined by meaning. It is the binding 
and authoritative mandate that God gives to us, his people. And then when you look at verse 2, then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, the women, and all who could understand were listening. All. That word all is found 11 times in these 12 verses. All. Now, folks, you can look up the word all in most dictionaries, and it means all. It means all. All the people, all the women, all those that could listen. I believe this is one of the best prototypes of seeing an assembly of integrated people. The men, the women, the children, the babies, they all came together. All came together. And then the other key word, and by the way, most commentaries would tell you that there could be about 30 to 50,000 people that gathered and came together. The all there could have been between 30 to 50,000 people. And the word understand is really the key word in this chapter. It's found five times in verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, and 12. And that's significant. Because in verse 7, it says that the Levites provided the understanding. They were expositors of the law. Again, it means they told the people what God meant by what he said. Oh, the joy, oh, the blessing... Oh, the, the peace that we experience when we come to a church that we know God has us at. And we sit under a pastor that exposits the text and tells us what God means by what he says so that we can understand it. That's important. All who could understand when listening listening God wants you to listen to what he says he wants you to hear what he says there was a time when I would go to pastors conference over the years and I was the kind of guy that if it started at 10 o'clock in the morning there's a couple of thousand pastors there I, bet, I guarantee you I would be at the door an hour and a half or sometimes two being the first one to get in because I was going to sit right on the front. Because I wanted to hear everything that was being said. Not to mean you couldn't hear back there or, or you cannot still hear in the back or in the middle of whatever. But there was just something about being on the front pew in that place and hearing that word of God exposited that would just do something in my heart. It's like Jeremiah said that the, the finding of the truth was the joy of his heart. It's like Job said that God's word to him was more necessary than the food he would eat. But then some of my pastor friends, they wouldn't care. They thought I was ridiculous about that. So they finally would get in. I'd see them way in the back somewhere. You're about to have to have binoculars to see them. Until one day, I went back and looked at one of the videos, and the cameraman scanned the whole audience of guys, and there was two of my pastor friends sitting in the back asleep. And I told them about it. Didn't go over too well. 
I said, see, that's what you get if you don't sit on the front because you're too afraid to go asleep on the front because you're scared the speaker will see you sleeping while he's preaching. You say, Dave, what's the sense of that? The sense of that is do we come to church just to make an appearing? Do we come to church just because it makes us feel good? Or do we come to church to worship God and to hear what he says? And to hear it, you got to listen and you need to be ready, as Pastor Mark said a few moments ago, to do that. Verse 3, Ezra read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate. From early morning until midday. Oh my gosh, they had long-winded preachers. That's about six hours. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. We certainly know that ears are part of the body. It's a part of the organ of hearing, the ear. But the attentive word here, where it says all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Actually means to uncover the ear to hear that the receiver would hear and receive divine revelation from God. It is to say that every time we come together, here's this aspect of the word restore, bring back, these people wanted the book. They were all together. They had one thing in mind, to hear the book. They were at a place in their life that they were coming out of that Babylonian captivity, out of that time of judgment and chastisement from God, and all of a sudden they realized we've got to get back to the book. This has got to be restored to our life. We've got to get back to the book we got to get back and be attentive. We need to take the ear because every time the preacher or Ezra or the Levites exposit the text, it is bringing the divine revelation of God to bear on our hearing. It means that when we come, we're hearing God speak to us. Am I getting just too excited here this evening? Proverbs 4.20 says, My son, attend to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Don't let them depart from your eyes, but keep them in the midst of your heart for their life to those that find them and help to all their flesh. That word there, attentive, actually implies give God's word your undivided attention. That's what it means. Verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium which they made for the purpose. Now keep in mind, when you count all the names that I omitted didn't read, there in verse 6 and there again later, um, no, excuse me, verse 4, and then in verse 7, pardon me, it's about 26 individuals. And that podium had to be big enough to hold a good portion of them because what would happen is the crowd was so big you didn't have a PA system but the crowd was so big that they were working like a tag team Ezra's reading from the book because they said bring us the book 
But these scribes who are astute in the law of God were communicating this to people that maybe couldn't hear Ezra because you've got 30 to 50,000 people. But he stood on this wooden podium. It had to be huge. It had to be huge. Which was made for the purpose of bringing the book to the people. The podium was large enough to hold 14 men for the approximate six hours of reading and expositing and explaining the law of God to the people. The men were priests and Levites who stood with Nehemiah to show their agreement. Then verse 5, Ezra opened the book of the law in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now when it says there he was above the people in a position, it doesn't mean that he was above them as being necessary any better or above them where they were looking to him as something very special that they would exalt. But he was in a place that was above where the podium was built out of wood that could hold those that were participating in, again, reading or expositing the law so that they would realize that's the place of the law and the word of God holds and should be positioned in the heart of God's people. It has an elevated position. We have a high view, an exalted view of the word of God. And that's what it implies. So restore means to bring back. But now as we progress into this chapter further, the word renew or renewed what happened when the truth of God was restored to the people of God true worship was renewed a true worship and when we speak of renew we are essentially saying that something is taken up again or to take up like restore means to bring back renew means to take up something again to take it up again. And this is seen in verse 6. Again, notice what it says. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. He blessed Yahweh, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. It's like they're saying, that's the truth. That is thus saith the Lord. So be it. That's what God is saying. Oh my goodness, folks. What really goes on in your heart and what really goes on in your mind when you hear the truth preached? Does it cause you like Ezra, he blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered amen and amen, and while lifting up their hands, why did we ever stop this? You would think everybody in church now has bursitis in their elbows. What's wrong with Lifting the hands and worshiping God. I think it was even Paul that told Timothy in chapter 3 verse 8 that he would have holy men everywhere lifting up holy hands. There's nothing wrong with lifting up hands to worship the Lord. And then they all bowed low. And how low? Hit the deck low. Hit the deck low. They were so overcome by the truth that was being preached, what was being brought back, 
and what now was being taken up again resulted in true worship. True worship. They lifted their hands and they all bowed low and worshiped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. How low did they go? Where were they at when they worshiped? They hit the deck. Their faces to the ground. I know the Bible gives a lot of different postures you can be in when you pray and when you worship. You can kneel, you can stand, you can be prostrate, you can lift your hands, you can raise your hands, you can look up with your eyes open, you can close your eyes, you can bow your head, you can lift your head. But these people were worshiping. They were worshiping and exalting the King of glory, the Lord. I love that part where it says that Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. Psalm 86.10 says, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Deuteronomy 32.3 says, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 150 verse 2 says, Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to the abundance of His greatness. When's the last time you worship God and you lift your hands or you bowed or you hit the deck just to worship God for His greatness? Verse 7, The Levites were providing understanding of the law. That's what an expositor does. That's what a preacher does. To the people, while the people stood in their place. Now they progressed. They're back at a place of standing. As they're listening, 30 to 50,000 people. Six hours. We got to have a pewter padded. Summertime has got to be 60 degrees in here. You got to have your comfort. You can only listen so long. Uh... You know, uh, people have a, a, a bad issue with attention and this kind of thing. But it's amazing. You can tailgate. You can go to a football game and you can stay there for three or four hours. <coughs> and you can see a pigskin filled up with air with somebody running from end to end to end to end and not miss a beat. But you come to church, you got to have all the comforts. It's all about you. It's all about me. Really? I don't think so. It's about the greatness of God. It's about worshiping Him and the beauty of His holiness. So they were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood. And verse 8 says, They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining, giving insight, and they provided understanding of the reading. Notice the word read. Is found several times in this chapter. But the word there, read, doesn't just simply mean that they were reading in a monotone fashion. The actual word in the Hebrew means to call out. The word read means to call out, to cry out, to proclaim. It probably would go something like this almost. 
Ezra. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of of the Lord forever. That's reading the Bible to them. Crying out, proclaiming. Speaking of renewal, speaking of taking up again, notice what Ezra and the approximately 26 Levites were doing. They were providing understanding from the book, the law of God. They were expositors. They read. They explained. They gave insight. They provided understanding. That is expository preaching. In revival, whether it's through Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards, they were both expositing scripture that brought renewal and revival in their day. When they heard and understood God's law, they understood their disobedience to it. Where they had violated the law. In other words, there was a genuine brokenness over their sin. We're going from restore to renew. Bringing it back. Bringing it back. Restore, renew. And there was a genuine brokenness over their sin. They were cut to the core. The reading, the explanation, the insight, the understanding exposed them before God. This was not tears of joy. It was sorrow that came forth as they grieved by conviction over their sin in transgressing the Lord's commands and over the chastisement of God in their captivity in Babylon. In this proclamation of truth from Ezra, it was literally God revealing himself to God's people. It was God revealing himself in <clears throat> majestic holiness and irresistible power. There is one of the most significant things seen here. That this majestic holiness and this irresistible power shows that God in his sovereignty is so efficacious. That once they heard this word, they're coming back. They're being brought back. Something is being brought back. There's something being renewed that it was over realizing that God is majestic. God is holy. His power is irresistible. Their sin was exposed. And it leads to our final thought, and that's the word revive. Restore, renew, revive. God gave revival under Ezra's leadership to his people. Again, God governs revival. He's in control of that. And surely, surely it's a proper response to the Lord to experience genuine sorrow, grief, and conviction over sin. But they were urging the people to be joyful. 
Do you see that in the text there? As we look in verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, the Levites, who provided the people with understanding, said to all the people, This day is holy, your God, do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the Lord. They were convicted. But they're saying, Listen, this is a holy day. Yom Kippur, their, their beginning of the year, the, the day of atonement, where the priest would go into the tabernacle and actually sacrifice the animal for his own sin and the sin of the people. It's almost as though that they're saying, you know, now with what's being revived and what has been renewed and what has been restored, you need to be joyful because you are forgiven. And then we look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go eat of the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who was nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. Strength. Restoration. Renewal. Revival. Results that come as a result is a joy-filled heart. Because there's no greater joy to be experienced in the life of any Christian than when they find themselves obeying God, living for God on His terms, and doing what He says. So out of what was revived, there was a true sense of joy. They celebrated with great gladness. There's another expression of their joy. And there again is joy. Why was there joy? Why was there joy? It says there, Again, in the latter part of verse 12, let's read it all. Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate with great gladness because, here's the reason why, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. There was a time to celebrate and rejoice what was restored and renewed, and what was indeed revived. Father, thank you so much for your word. We give you glory, we give you praise, we give you honor. You alone are worthy to be praised. We do worship you, God, in the beauty of your holiness, in all of your goodness, in all of your magnificent attributes, all that you are. We worship you, Lord. We give you praise. We give you glory. God, we know that you govern revival. We know that we can't make it happen. But we know we can pray in such a way and fast in such a way and devour your word in such a way that we can certainly see ourselves set that when you providentially see fit to blow the winds of your reviving power upon our lives and the church that we would indeed be a part of that. We give you praise and glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.